Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today I'm speaking with Jackie Howard, a bilingual educator and former Montessori child living in Austin, Texas. Jackie grew up speaking Spanish and English at home and went to a Montessori school from kindergarten to eighth grade. She has worked in the field of education for 13 years, first as a bilingual elementary teacher, then as an instructional coach mentoring teachers, and now as a high school humanities teacher and college consultant. In our conversation, we discuss Jackie's childhood memories from Montessori school and how she thinks her Montessori education has influenced her as an adult, as well as what it was like transitioning to a Waldorf high school and then to college. We also discuss her experiences studying abroad in Spanish-speaking countries, first in high school in Peru, then in college in Mexico, and finally in Spain where she got her master's degree in Spanish language and culture. Jackie shared her experiences as an educator in low-income Texas public schools and what advice she has for parents who are raising bilingual children. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Hey, Gabrielle. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. So to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Yeah, um, I'm Jackie Howard, and I live in Austin, Texas, and I am a high school teacher. Um, I teach humanities, and I also am a student support specialist, and I also have a um, business where I do private one-on-one college counseling uh, for uh, high school students to navigate the college application process. Awesome. Yeah. Um, So we met through our Montessori connection and you grew up going to Montessori school as a child. So uh, I would love to hear what you remember about going to Montessori school as a child and how you think that it may have shaped your life as an adult. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Montessori, so my Montessori memories, yeah, I went from, you know, age five, I think, through eighth grade, and um, mainly my biggest takeaway was that it didn't ever feel like school, quote unquote, like, it just felt like another home, like it felt very, I felt so much ownership of my classroom, of my peers, of my environment, um, it felt, it just had a feeling of intrigue and curiosity that was, you know, just very much, um, I don't know, a a place where I felt at home and at ease. Um, It didn't feel like I was being told what to do. I had a lot of autonomy. I had so much um, just say and voice and how I was going to navigate my day and my week and my year. And, um, and I just felt like an, a real active participant. And I think that is probably the biggest thing that has shaped who I am, um, as an adult, because I'm, um, I'm a leader in, in many ways as an educator. And I lead, you know, I lead young people through their life decisions and through their studies. And, I think that being given so much autonomy um, in my early development allowed me to feel confident in my own voice. Um, and that um, that kind of confidence, I think, is crucial in, in leadership types of roles. And so I think um, the way I interacted with my environment and, and my, yeah, my classroom and my and all that has probably shaped just me being a confident human being in the world, um, looking around and seeing where the gaps are and, and figuring it out. Like just this like constant problem solving mindset 
and the way I think and the way I approach things, I think is what has probably really informed how I navigate my whole life, not just in my career, but in everything. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Cause we talk a lot about the whole child and the whole education rather than just math and language. And that is, you know, you're a great example of that as an adult. <laughs> After eighth grade, then you transitioned to a Waldorf environment. So what was that like? And what um, what did you find similar or different between those two environments? Yeah. Um, so transitioning in uh, ninth grade to the Waldorf school was, I would say, a very easy transition in, in the sense that at that kind of stage of development, I think there's kind of a confluence where the pedagogies merge maybe more than they do at younger stages of development. Um, that's my adult like metacognitive <laughs> like analysis. But at the time, you know, as a 14 year old, it just felt like another small cohort of family that you're with from ninth through 12th grade. So it was this group of peers that become your family throughout high school. And that felt very similar to the Montessori classroom where you're with a cohort of peers for, you know, throughout, um, and they become kind of like your siblings, like your extended family and similar with the teachers, like they just felt like extensions of my family. Um, and so it was this very familial feel. Um, and I would say as far as, I mean, things changed a little bit and I knew this would be the case because it was either that or public school where I started to have grades or tests or, um, you know, yeah, ways in which I, my intellect was measured, which wasn't really something that I experienced prior. But um, luckily, my peers at Waldorf had never had grades or tests. Well, they had had tests, but not really grades, um, like until ninth grade. So we were all kind of experiencing that at the same time. Um, so there was there was kind of this natural um, change happening for everybody in the group. So I didn't feel like an outsider. Um, and then some differences, I would say, um, I don't know. I think my math understanding was very, very, like very strong from Montessori. And so I often felt um, a little less challenged in math. Um, but then, you know, they, they diverge into two different math tracks. And so I was in the more advanced math group. Um, but that was probably something that I noticed like, oh, like around other people, like that's something like my math skills were just so foundational and I didn't have to think about things. It was just kind of, there was a lot of, um, autom automatic recall, or I don't know, um, what you, what you call that, but it just felt very, I don't know, comfortable with math and um, and maybe less so with the arts. So Waldorf is very art heavy and I felt maybe a little bit like I hadn't had a lot of formal training in some of the art skills that some of my peers had had. And so, um, it wasn't, a, I, I found I loved art and I think that my art, the artist in me and also the athlete, I think in me came more to light in my high school years at Waldorf because that we had, you know, formal athletics and I was able to participate on a basketball team. And, um, and that just wasn't, that didn't really exist in Montessori. And I, I participated in YMCA soccer and whatnot, but um, yeah. So I think those kind of more move, the movement focus and the art focus, what seemed heavier in the Waldorf environment than in the Montessori environment. Okay. Mm. I, initial, um, and then of course, science, I think was, I think that just like curiosity and asking questions and that, um, that leadership that I talked about earlier, that those pieces were very, very strong from my Montessori background of just inquiry-based thinking. Yeah. 
And then when you went to college, what was that transition like? I, a question I get often is really at any level, like if I send my child to a Montessori school, what is it going to be like when they transition back into, you know, traditional education? So going from Montessori, then Waldorf to college, what was that like? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so the, tra- I mean, I think the transition when you're 18 years old is more developmental. You're just, I, I personally at least was really ready to um, exert my independence. And I think that a lot of Montessori um, children and adolescents are very comfortable with their independence. And so leaving the home and going off to the college environment was not something that was I didn't even bat an eye like it was like it's you know it was a very comforting comfortable place to go I also studied abroad in high school in 10th grade so that leaving of home and going to a different school and different environment was also um so I guess like socially and emotionally I guess is what I'm saying that exerting of independence is so um it's a place of comfort and it's just it's fed very nicely in the Montessori environment. And so in that sense, it was very easy Um, as far as like sitting in large classes and lecture classes and things like that. That was very different for me. Um, But I went to a small liberal arts college, so it wasn't like they were huge classes, but I was, I was a biology major and a lot of those freshman biology classes were pre-med weed out classes. So they were really tough and quick and challenging. And I just, I found myself relying on my strategies from both Montessori and Waldorf. I would like take notes in class. And then afterwards I would like rewrite my notes in a way that like was comprehensible and like beautiful. And I would color on them and like make this like beautiful, like way to read my notes. So that when it came, and so that, so that process of rewriting my notes was a way of studying and something that none of my other peers at college did, but I knew that strategy from Waldorf and from, from the main lesson books at Waldorf and probably from Montessori as well. And, um, I also like made it a point to know my professors, especially in like larger classes. I, um, would go to office hours, which a lot of students don't take advantage of and just get to know them, ask them questions. That was never something I was afraid of. And I I do notice that in adolescents, especially now are, there's just this kind of hesitancy around like asking questions. And that is not something you see in Montessori. (laughs) They are very comfortable asking questions um, because there's just not this kind of like hierarchy um, there's, it's kind of non-hierarchical. And so your curiosity is just, it's celebrated. So I took advantage of office hours and that helped a lot. And, um, I remember organic chemistry being really tough (laughs) and I went to, um, I was like registered in the one o'clock PM class. And I had this thing in college where I never wanted to take a class before, noon or like before 10 a.m. right if I could help it because you know you like to sleep in and I noticed that that same that professor was really tough and challenging and uh, I noticed that he taught a class that same day at 8 a.m. so I would go to the eight o'clock class and then go to my same that same class again at one o'clock so he would see me twice he started to recognize me and he's like which section are you in I'm like I'm in the afternoon class but I'm coming to both because I need to hear it twice (laughs) um so just like kind of like not playing by the rules necessarily and taking my own path to make sure that I knew that I was getting the most out of my education um I think those are those are just the kind of inherent traits that we're a little out of the box and a little, you know, not so conventional ways of approaching my learning. But I would say, I mean, I don't know. I think the discussion classes, those are very comfortable and familiar um, because so much of my education was, was that like discussion. So all of those like freshman seminar classes and whatnot, like I, I think the transition was was really quite easy. And and that's, I mean, I went to a liberal arts college where it was, that was 
the intent, right? I didn't go to University of Texas where I did have peers that went there and but they were very, they knew exactly what they wanted to study. So let's talk a little bit about language. Tell me about the role that language and bilingualism played in your life growing up. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in, in a household where my grandmother, my mom's mom, my abuelita, lived with us. And she's Colombian. My mom's also Colombian. And she would speak to us only in Spanish. And for the first three years, my mom also attempted, I think heavily with me, but I don't really remember, um, to speak to me only in Spanish. So uh, there were three adults in the home, my abuelita, my mom, and my dad, and two of them would only speak to me in Spanish. Um, so I think it was a little bit just the way of my household until I started attending um, kindergarten. And, uh, and so school was all English. And I remember the first time I think I went to a friend's house after school and the mom asked what I wanted for a snack after school. And I just responded in Spanish, not really realizing or having any sense that some words were in one language and some words were in another language. Like I just knew that I wanted pan y queso y jugo de naranja, which <laughs> is like a grilled cheese and orange juice. <laughs> so like when I asked for that in Spanish, um, I was looked at like, what, what, like, like, and it really freaked me out the reaction that this child's mom had when I asked for my snack and I felt really embarrassed. Um, and I, I do remember that experience very vividly and, and that feeling of embarrassment of, of like, that's not a thing that anybody else is eating, A, and B, like I'm saying things that like, I just felt really embarrassed. And so I started really just responding always in English to things um, because I started to recognize that that was like the language of the people. So my, I think my abuelita continued speaking to me in Spanish until she lived with us probably until I was maybe 10 years old. Um, but I think my responses were all in English or if they were in Spanish, I wasn't aware that it was Spanish, <laughs> um, but because I think there were certain phrases that just were always in Spanish or that, that came to me first in Spanish. Um, but so I kind of had this a little bit of shame from early on. And then when I started to kind of get older and we traveled a lot every summer, we would go to somewhere in Latin America um, to practice our Spanish and just to be there and be immersed. I really started to feel like I needed to practice my own Spanish because like I could understand, but I wasn't speaking it conf confidently and comfortably. And so, I mean, when we were young, like we would go to little summer camps and stuff in Mexico. Um, but I really took it upon myself to plan a study abroad, uh, in high school. Well, initially the intention was to go in eighth grade, but, um, Colombia at that time was a pretty dangerous place. And my relatives like, wouldn't even take me. They were like, it's too dangerous. You're going to get kidnapped. <laughs> Don't come here. So then I had to spend all of freshman year and, and planning it with my Waldorf school of how to go sophomore year. But I was like, dead set on it from the time I was like in seventh grade that I was going to study abroad and really immerse myself because I knew that was the way to really become comfortable speaking it and around my family and whatnot like when we get together we had big family get-togethers my mom is one of 16 siblings wow. so uh lots of cousins you know I think I have 42 of us that are the grandchildren and wow. then like so just huge family get-togethers and I felt just like this like inner tension I guess that like this part of me this Colombian side of me wasn't fully expressing itself and so I knew I I just knew that I needed to really immerse myself to get that confidence of speaking the language. Um, so yeah, so I studied, so I was out studying abroad in 10th grade. I, it was easier for me because I knew so much. I, I arrived and I could understand, right? So, and speak basics, but I became much more fluent and comfortable, especially in academics and in writing and that sort of stuff um, in 10th grade when I studied abroad in Peru. 
So, so was it the whole year that you were there? I was there half a year. So like the second semester of my sophomore year. And then, I mean, and then my relationship with language, I mean, continued to evolve. Of course, after that, um, I studied abroad in college in Oaxaca, Mexico for a semester. And then beyond that, in my 20s, I did my master's degree in Spain, um, where I got my master's in Spanish. And that's, it's a master's program for um, native Spanish speakers. So it's completely in Spanish in Spain. Um, Yeah. And that was uh, it was different for me to go from Latin American Spanish to Spain Spanish. And, and most of us in the program were not from Europe. We were like mostly from, um, or speaking of like from some country in Latin America or South America. Um, and so that Spain Spanish was different. And yeah, tell um, me more about that and, and doing that master's program. Yeah. So, I mean, so it was a multi-summer program because it was for educators. So we went during the summer um, and then we wrote a thesis kind of throughout the school year when we were away in Spanish. And I did mine on um, project-based learning for the bilingual child, for the bilingual elementary child and how that kind of real world experience and thinking in an immersion basically in a project is a natural way to acquire language. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and I wrote the whole thesis in Spanish and did all the research in Spanish. Although some of the reading was, some of the research was in English. So that was, that was interesting because I'd have to like paraphrase, you know, something oh, yeah. that's in a different language in my thesis. Um, and just, yeah, just being in Spain for two summers and being immersed in school there, um, I don't know, it was, it was fascinating. It was fast, very fast paced. Um, the professors just speak, fa- like the cadence of, Span- of Spain Spanish is just a lot quicker than like the cadence of someone from Mexico um, or even Peru or Colombia. And so I think I'm, I was more used to like the Spanish of those three countries and definitely have an accent of such, which is of course no accent. And the Spaniards are the one with the accent, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So I think, um, so I became a lot more confident in my academic Spanish doing my master's degree there. Um, but I certainly was feeling like a little nervous going into it just because if you don't practice something all the time, um, which for sure my academic writing in Spanish is not something I practice all the time. Um, then you start to feel rusty and, uh, but being there of course just really helps and being in, in academia there and hearing mm. the academic vocabulary from your professors all the time, um, was really helpful. Um, it was mostly, I think all of our classes, well, not all, but mostly lecture based. So it was a lot of receiving <laughs> mm. um, which I think was it helped linguistically to help familiarize myself with all those academic vocabulary words in Spanish yeah yeah and then socially you had all of your classmates as well exactly yeah and well the, and the classmates were from everywhere um, from U.S. from all over Latin America so the, my classmates were it was a, a global slew of people um, which was really, and, and ages too, there were so much because we were all educators. Um, and most people t- teach our Spanish teachers, like they teach Spanish as a second language in the program, um, with the exception of some of us, like in Texas that are bilingual educators, but most states don't usually offer bilingual education like Texas does. Um, and so, yeah, so that was also fascinating. Yeah. To hear, to be around, a peer group where we're speaking Spanish all the time. It was wonderful. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. I love that. Um, so this transitions nicely into my next question, which is tell me about your journey to becoming an educator. And when did you know that you wanted to be a teacher? And uh, what were some of your early teaching experiences like? <laughs> uh, I was born a teacher. I think my <laughs> first class was like 20 stuffed animals. <laughs> Somehow that does not surprise me. <laughs> 
And then my first pupil was my youngest sister. <laughs> played school. I'm like made her play school all the time. Um, Cause you know, what else are you supposed to do with a small child that's six years younger than you? It's like a given toy that you get to yeah. play with. Um, so I got to play school with her all the time. Um, no, I really did always know that I was an educator. I mean, I truly was just like born loving, sharing, um, knowledge or like helping other, helping young people learn things or discover things or have questions about things, um, and, and understand their place in this world and just ignite that curiosity. So, um, I always knew it and, and I chose not to study it um, in, in college because I'm also a lifelong learner. And I think that is inherent in educators is that we like have a thirst for learning. Um, and that's why we're probably so enamored with also the, the, just the education environment. And so I definitely like wanted college to be a place where it fed my curiosities. And as far as education went, I felt like, pretty confident in my natural teaching abilities and wanted to just learn in college. So it was, so I studied psychology and biology in college. Um, and then formally, like in my first year after college, I was a Montessori assistant in children's house. Um, and during that year I became certified to teach in the state of Texas um, I also knew that I wanted to spend a lot of time like with a different demographic that could have been that of a private school. And so I purposefully and intentionally sought out the lowest income elementary school in the Austin area and applied there, spent five years teaching there, taught third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade as a bilingual teacher and um, just loved every second of it. I mean, like, I, I mean, yeah. So I think, um, that experience in public school was honestly the very first time I stepped foot in a public, uh, public school classroom. And I didn't know the ways quote unquote, uh, or the culture that public school has, which was a huge blessing because I think it made me wildly successful um, because I relied, and I think most first-year educators do rely on the way that they learned or the teachers that influence them the most or some, you know, some teacher that you might remember or the, you know, like you kind of just inherently and maybe subconsciously rely on your own educational experiences unless it was terrible and you went and like studied a different way. Um, but my, you know, my educational upbringing was wonderful. So I relied very heavily on everything that I knew from Waldorf and Montessori, uh, in my classroom. So there wasn't a lot of like spitting around and like me lecturing. There was just like a lot of care put into the environment. I remember I spent so much time that summer before my first year teaching, like making sure that everything that was hung on the wall was so beautiful and intentional. And, you know, I went to garage sales and like picked up little shelves and little things to put on the shelf. Like I just, that's what I thought you did. And, and that's what I did. Um, and my classroom just looked very different from a lot of people's classrooms and the way that I taught was very different. And so, um, so it was just, it was interesting because, a lot of teachers began like in my first year and they had experience were asking me questions about like, well, how are you doing this? And how are you, you know, I like how you're doing this. I can kind of tell that you're doing it differently and would start asking me a lot of questions. So I started kind of informally mentoring or just like sharing all of my experiences and resources uh, with other teachers, which led me eventually to become an instructional coach um, because I felt like I was like mentoring all these novice teachers. I had student teachers in my classroom all the time. And so I was kind of helping all these educators, um, without any real formal instruction of like, this is how you teach. <laughs> like, like I was kind of throwing, like at the lowest income school, you're kind of, there's a lot of turnover and, um, you're kind of 
quote unquote, thrown to the wolves, you know, it's just like, here you go. Hope you survive. Um, and yeah, so, but I, I mean, I loved it. And so then I was an instructional coach for seven years. Um, so I coached other teachers, um, in pedagogy and really in just how, like the state provides us the curriculum, the school district tells us this is the order we want you to teach this curriculum in. And that's what's given to teachers. And it's really unhelpful. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was this kind of in-between human being that brought it to life and was like, okay, like, no, you don't just teach multiplication in one week in December in third grade. Like it happens all the time and all the grades and every day and just really bringing things to life um, and, and helping with that, like how, how to engage students meaningfully and make some, make learning authentic, which was something that I felt very passionately about. I, you know, and I still do just that a child should not be just told you need to know this just because like there needs to be real authentic reason. And that is, that is ingrained in me from, from very early on from Montessori and that everything has a purpose. Everything is authentic and everything is related to a greater reasoning. And so that was kind of my main goal as an instructional coach was to always kind of zoom out, bring back the big purpose of why are we doing this and, and, and ignite some inspiration in, in teachers. Cause of course, teachers are wanting to teach and, but they don't always know the best way um, to do that. And, and there's no one right way. There's so many different styles of learning and whatnot. And I learned from the teachers also as an, as a coach, I was, Oh, I saw this cool thing in this other classroom. Let's try it in here. You know? Um, so so that was my elementary experience. And then this year, I just, I switched over to high school and have been teaching 10th and 12th grade uh, humanities. And, um, and I think that was also kind of born out of some burnout uh, in these high needs public schools for 12 years. It's, it's exhausting and um, needing something maybe just a little bit new to inspire me. Uh, and I have a head of school now or head of high school that is so inspiring to me and, and my colleagues are so inspiring to me that I feel like I'm, I'm gaining a lot as an educator to be around people that are inspiring me. And I, I don't feel like I'm in the singular role of being the one inspiration piece at a campus. So it's just really nice because I feel like I'm learning all over again. And, and you know, 10th graders are just giant fifth graders. They're not that big of a difference. (laughs) That was going to be my question. What has the, what was the transition going from like elementary school teacher to high school teacher been like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was going to be really different and I was really excited for the different, you know, um, they tasked me with teaching economics, which I was just like, I'm pretty much the last person on the planet you want teaching economics. I don't know anything about it, but like I said, I was like really excited to learn it and, and make it meaningful and not just teach something that was like, this is how it's been taught before. So this is how you teach it. Like, I was like, no, we're going to, I'm going to really dive deep into this and make this meaningful. Um, So I think it was really exciting for me to dive into content at the high school level. In elementary, the content just doesn't get as deep. Um, I mean, it can, but at a certain level, it's just not the conversations that you can't have with a 10-year-old are not as, um, yeah, just deep or complex as they can be with uh, high schooler. So I think I was really ready to have that kind of understanding and deeper, more complex conversations with students about the content. So diving into like special content areas was more appealing to me um, and also a challenge because it was just new. Uh, and then as far as like the actual like human beings, like, like I said, they're just kind of giant elementary age kids, (laughs) they still just want to like be loved by you. And they're still just curious and they're trying to, they're very much trying to figure out who they are. Um, which I think I, I just love being a part of that and just like, like, like letting them explore who they are in many different ways. 
and, and just blowing flames on that. Like, yes, like find out who you are. Like, um, I don't know. It's a, that's an exciting part of working with adolescents because they're really about to take that step into the real world and assert who they are in this, in this world. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I think at first it was probably a little scary. I think if I had done it younger, it might have felt differently, but I think because I'm older and I have so much experience under my belt, standing in front of a classroom of, of kids, I don't feel as intimidated. Like I just, I feel confident in my experience. And so that carries me through. I think for me, the part that felt like that I was not as confident in, it was like, what if they ask a question? I don't know the answer. And then that's like, okay, actually brilliant. Like the best teachers are like, I don't know. That's a really wonderful thing. Let's look it up, you know? And so of course, remembering that, but you know, at, at high school level and college level, you start to think like, oh, I'm supposed to be this expert in this content area. And while I am, I'm, I'm just lighting little fires, little sparks inside of them to hopefully go home and research more, right? That's the goal. Not that I am the expert that they ask all the questions of. So I think for me, that was part of like, because in elementary, you kind of just, you are the standing expert for, and you still want to encourage them to research on their own. But I think um, in high school, there really are questions they ask that I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? So I don't know. I think that's, um, that was part of that. And, and what drew me to it, I think was just the excitement of doing something different. Let's go back a little bit to your experiences teaching and bilingual programs. What was the setup of your classroom either of the day or of the week? When did you speak English? When did you speak Spanish? And what was that like? Yeah. So um, I taught at a school and actually both schools that I worked at as a coach and as a teacher. Um, and most schools that are predominantly um, Hispanic and have a majority um, English language learners are um, transitioning students from Spanish to English and it's less dual language. Sadly, you see in Austin anyway, you see dual language programs where it's like much more equitable Spanish and English in schools that have a more heterogeneous population. So like, um, for example, Zilker Elementary, which maybe many of your listeners don't know that elementary school, but it's in a more um, diverse area. And the schools that I worked with were pretty homogenous, you know, 95% Hispanic, maybe 5%, Afri 5 to 10% African-American um, with probably 60 to 70% English language learners. So with that majority, a lot of the um, direction given to us was really to transition them, especially in the upper elementary grades, third, fourth, and fifth grades, to be in almost English all the time. Now that would be the exception would be a newcomer, which uh, the newcomer is the, is the term used for somebody that comes from a different country, like within the last year or two. Um, they're considered a newcomer and then their instruction is given in their native language, which is in, in Texas, it's Spanish. Um, and so, well, at the schools that I worked at. And so a lot of it was teaching strategies for, it was almost like ESL. I used Spanish a lot when trying to just have like fun conversation or take a brain break from English or relating to the students or especially, I mean, obviously used it a hundred percent during parent interactions. Um, and we would, and we would read in Spanish. So some students I had um, in third grade and fourth grade were going to be, were still getting instruction in Spanish. So this transition was not all students just transitions in third grade to English. So, but students that were ready or deemed, you know, advanced or advanced high, according to this metric called TELPASS, which is um, like how they score their English level for a non-native English speaker. Um, and so, and it, you know, it looks at reading, writing, listening, and speaking, and it's a holistic kind of 
approach uh, of kind of grading a student on their English proficiency. So if a student was still like struggling in their native language, they were not ready to transition to English in third or fourth grade or sometimes fifth grade as well. And so with that student, um, they would get smaller group, like the whole group kind of lessons might be more in English. And then, so they're getting some English exposure, but then like they're getting targeted smaller group instruction and reading and uh, writing in Spanish. For the most part, math um, was taught in English with a few exceptions and then um, science as well. So math and science were a lot more kind of their ESL time. And the language arts was more if they, you know, if they were still making that transition, then I would spend, you know, more time in Spanish. And then as, as the time progressed with that child, I might say, oh, like in December, they're ready to start reading books, you know, more in English than in Spanish. But, you know, like you kind of pick um, which language is their focus and you're, and you're in constant observation of how some students pick up language really quickly and um, are more interested in English or more drawn to it and others less so. So just constant observation of what they're interested in. Um, and eventually all the middle schools were in English. So that's eventually we want them by fifth grade to be comfortable in the classroom in all subject areas in English. So as a fifth grade teacher, I was really heavily pushing and teaching a lot of English strategies. And that would involve a lot of movement, song and um, pictures, you know, just like images and all sorts of different ways. And really just explaining words, even if they don't ask, what does that mean? Just explaining what different words mean in a lot of different ways and exposing them to, to vocabulary and a lot of just different ESL kind of ways. So I don't know if that was a long roundabout kind of way of describing it, but. No, that was great. That's really interesting um, that it wasn't a dual language program. Like we sometimes think that it was more of a transitional program yeah. as the goal. Did you ever give parents advice on like, did parents ever come to you and ask like, what language should I speak to them at home if they spoke English? I know most of them probably didn't, but would you give advice on like, read to your child in Spanish at home or, or that sort of thing? Would you advise it all on the home component of language? Um, for, yes, for certain parents that have the bandwidth to read to children at home, which at these schools, like they were the, the highest need schools and oftentimes the parents were not as involved. But yes, to, to maintain that, that home language and culture, um, because I was really trying to work with, with these children of, yes, we were transitioning to English, but to not have any shame around their home language. So that, and that's why, like as a bilingual teacher, they knew they could ask me anything in Spanish and that we're all just like taking risks and practicing English and making a lot of mistakes and, um, and that's okay. And really encouraging the, the families um, to, to continue all of their home, you know, their home culture and their home language um, as much as possible because that we didn't want children to just feel like they had to be English speakers mm -hmm. just because that's what the school system was kind of like set up for, um, sadly. Because um, I do think, and I think all bilingual educators do believe that the, the dual language system is much more, it just maintains that Spanish and that confidence in Spanish um, throughout, and it doesn't get lost in late childhood, which happens in these transitional programs. Um, and unfortunately, it's hard to do when your middle school and high schools aren't set up for dual language. And that's just a staffing issue. We don't have enough secondary Spanish speaking teachers that are teaching middle school and high school um, to maintain that dual language. But there are some programs, like there's, there are a few, they're out there. I just wasn't, they just weren't happening in the neighborhoods that I was teaching at where they have 50, 50 Spanish English all day from kindergarten through 12th grade. And so it's never like picking one over the other. And, um, and that native home language 
um, in, in Texas, many cases it's Spanish, um, is just, it's celebrated and held with more reverence and more seriousness. Whereas when you're kind of transitioning out of Spanish instruction and into full English immersion, um, yes, we want our, our students to be successful in, in, in English, but we also want them to maintain their, their Spanish and their home language. Um, so I did encourage parents to read, watch TV, you know, like all this stuff in, in Spanish to, to keep that vibrant in the home um, as much as they can, because that's kind of where it can maintain itself. It can be maintained. Yeah, yeah. that's a delicate line to walk, like having to follow the, you know, curriculum set by the school district, but also not wanting to contribute to like the erasure of their language and culture and the shame like you said so they were lucky to yeah. have you oh, I bet not you. I bet not every teacher thought about it in that comprehensive a way yeah I mean it, it yeah that's probably true and and it's also it wasn't even just like this is the way the curriculum is because it wasn't really a curricular decision but it was more like the reality of sixth grade for these kids is they're dumped in middle school where it's all English no bilingual teachers to help translate there's some ESL teachers but their caseloads are enormous and the reality is the support's not there and so I would see as a fourth grade teacher all these middle school dropouts and it would break my heart because they're brilliant kids and um and so just really that just kind of I remember um, as a fourth grade, when I think it was my first year teaching fourth grade that I just kind of woke up. And once I started seeing some of the students I knew dropping out, I was like, wait a minute, what are we doing in elementary that's not preparing them for, for to be successful in middle school? And why are they dropping out in sixth, seventh grade? And so that was like, it's devastating. And also like kind of forced this whole like, okay, we really need to walk this delicate balance, like you said. Of, of maintaining this celebration of their home language while also like giving them the, the power and confidence to navigate English middle school. So speaking of bilingual education, as a child who grew up bilingual and a bilingual educator, um, what what advice do you have for parents who are interested in raising bilingual children? Um, immersion. Don't stop speaking to them in the you know the non dominant language. You know, like if you're living in a country that's speaking English predominantly, like keep speaking the other the home language in the home if you can. If if the parents don't have that, then seek out a school where that can be, you know, predominant for their, for their child to have access and, um, and immersion to other children specifically around, um, other languages. I think when it's organic, especially for small children and they're around their, a peer group that's mixed, um, with lots of different cultures and languages, that's really just such a rich experience that you can't like make up for in high school Spanish or whatever, you know, like it's just, you can never make up for that. So, um, the younger, the, the better, um, cause they learn the sounds and then just also to, to travel, to see different cultures, to, to think worldly. I think one thing that, um, just in thinking through this interview with you, um, that Montessori really brought to my attention was geography. Um, and I was thinking about this, that geography is something that is taught very differently in Montessori education as it is in, in at least Texas public school curriculum. And where uh, in the children's house and ages by age three, you're, you know the continents, you know, you know all the continents of the world and you know where they are and you know the shapes of them. And then you start to learn in elementary school, the countries and the, um, and it's this kind of like macro foundation of here's the world. 
And then here's these countries. And then within those countries, you, sometimes you have states and cities and towns and you zoom in. And then by middle school, I just remember there was a lot of kind of local, like Texas, we would, you know, we would travel to a lot of like more local places um, in Texas. And, and we did a trigonometry project of building a pedestrian bridge over town lake in Austin, you know, like it was very local, but I just thought it was always so fascinating that it always had this foundation of we are part of this world and we're part of this big world with lots of countries and lots of, and then you start to learn about like it, it's concentric circles in that way. Whereas in public school, it starts in kindergarten with learn about your community and your neighborhood. And then you start to learn about your state in fourth grade. And then by middle school, it's world geography. So there's never this context or this foundation for like you as a global citizen. So my advice to parents would be have, have these conversations about being a global citizen because like a lot of public school education in, in terms of geography doesn't touch the world until middle school, until eighth grade. And that just doesn't provide the contact. That's such an individual, it's an individualistic like perspective of like, I'm this individual and then I exist in this, you know, and as you grow older, you you zoom out in public school, that's the way it's done. And I think I am a big proponent of the way Montessori does it and, and as parents can do it to travel with your kids. I know it might be a pain, but like take them to other countries um, young and expose them to different cultures and races and languages um, in authentic ways as much as possible and seek it out. Because I think that those real world experiences make language something that is an interest for a, a global budding human being that they're like, well, I want to be, and I've always been fascinated. I, you know, I have informally learned Portuguese and French and, and you know, cause like, if I'm going to travel there, I want to be able to communicate. And, um, and, and so I, it's just something that is innate because my parents traveled with me a lot. And because like, I knew it was real. I needed it to communicate with my family, with my extended family, or when we would go to summer camps in Mexico, like if I was going to make friends, I needed to know what, you know, Spanish. So it became, it was, a, it was out of necessity, but in this organic way, whereas taking it as a class, especially later on, is just so inauthentic and many students don't find it. They find it like they want to know it, but it's almost like it's too late. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it was a long answer. Yeah, <laughs> no, that is so interesting about the different ways to teach geography. I never thought about it in that way, but it is true that in Montessori, we sort of situate the child as a global citizen first and then look at, I mean, even before we look at continents, we look at the globe and yes. just see land and water. And I think that's really beautiful. Like before there's any political division, not in a negative way, just like literally the geographical political boundary borders. First, we look at this is the land and this is the water and this is the earth that we live on. Um, and that I think is a really nice perspective to take into um, all aspects of, of raising a child and as a global citizen and hopefully bilingual, multilingual citizen. Yeah. And then language, learning language is a vehicle for just existing in the world, right? I mean, right. from which you've been looking at this globe since before you can remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what comes up sometimes on this podcast is like, why do we teach children multiple languages? Of course, it's great for them to, you know, be able to get different jobs in different countries or have that line on their resume that says they speak different languages. And yes, it has cognitive, cognitive benefits, but really it's because we want them to be global citizens and to be able to move between cultures and understand different ways of thinking and understand that people live differently. And um, that kind of goes back to the same thing. Yeah, I mean, all those things that you just mentioned, how it looks on your resume and having more job opportunities and the cognitive benefits, all of those are just kind of like added bonuses to just this real reason of like, yeah, I can, you can be somebody who can go to another place or go to another, another culture and, and have more just understanding. We want 
we want all of these, we want to be a more inclusive and equitable and we fight for social justice all the time but as adults. And the only way for that to really be something that can, can happen is to have these global citizens, people that can really think beyond their own culture and language and think beyond um, just the individual, right? And think more of how do these all these cultures work together um, and it's just a more solutionary approach than, yeah, coming from one perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay. My last question for you is as a teacher, what advice do you have for parents of any age, really for partnering with their child's school and teachers? Um, I, t some parents might tend to be more hands-off. Some parents might tend to be more hands-on, but what do you as a teacher um, recommend for parents trying to partner with their child's school and teachers? That's a really good question. <laughs> I, um, gosh, I mean, I think I just always view that the parent-teacher partnership is, you know, the, the, it's, it's a true collaboration. And so that, that communication, the, the communication needs to be trusting the teachers. I think that right now in the political climate we live in, there's a lot of like not trusting of, of teachers. And um, I, I, I think that's really dangerous when parents become overly involved with what, what are you teaching and all these like banned books and like all of these, I don't know, just, um, there's, there can't, there can be a tendency for parents to all of a sudden just assume that they know what's best, um, and have a conversation before assuming, before assuming that with the teacher to, if you are curious what's going on in the, in the classroom or how things are running with, um, with your child and, and, and that environment and, and, keep those conversations alive, stay curious, um, about, you know, that, what, how your child is doing in the classroom. And, and I think that, I think just give teachers the benefit of the doubt that they are doing the best that they can for your child, because every teacher I've ever met is doing the very best for every child, um, that they possibly can. And there's a lot of obstacles out there. So I think just, um, have some compassion and, and just know that, um, just giving, yeah, just, I think giving teachers the benefit of the doubt. Um, and then I don't know, in this post COVID area, era, especially, especially for adolescents. Um, I, I, and I think just in general, it's, there's a lot of absences. So I think with some regularity and routine of like school being a place where you go, course, with the exception of if you're truly ill, but there's become almost like this kind of culture of it being like a little bit optional. And I think a lot of us that went remote sometimes are like, well, I'm sure it'd be nice to just like zoom in today because I don't feel like showering and getting ready. And, you know, for, for adolescents, it's hard. And I think my, my thing that I want parents to know is learning is hard work for your brain. It's, it is not a place of comfort. You're putting yourself, you're putting your brain in a place of novelty, which can be scary, uncertain, or overwhelming at times. And so the learning journey when, when a child is learning is not always easy, or, or I hear a lot, of, it's not always joyful because it's, it's hard. Um, and so, um, I think just understanding and knowing that there's always going to be a little bit of tension in when you're learning something new because uh, your brain is having to, you know, be, you know, working and working is just a little bit hard. And so go to school, show up. <laughs> and I think just have, have some routine and regularity around that and around, um, you know, especially for high schoolers around homework um, you know, support in that way. Cause it is, I think, especially after COVID right now, I'm, I'm seeing for a lot of high schoolers, it's just feeling very overwhelming, the workload. 
so not only did they kind of like miss a lot of school, so we're trying to like catch them back up, there's this catch up, but then also there's a lot of fatigue around how much thinking has to go on throughout the school day. And then again, at home with homework. And so um, just support, be patient um, and just reassure them that, um, you know, that it's, it's okay and it doesn't have to be perfect. And um, I think just, just communicate with, with your child and your teacher as much as you can and, or as much as healthy <laughs> support your teachers. I don't know. <laughs> that was kind of all over the place, but yeah. yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's so important. Also the trusting, starting the relationship with a foundation of trust and the understanding that you both want what's best for the children, even if you don't always see eye to eye coming to discussions or tricky situations with that perspective, I think is really important. Yes. Yes. I agree. Oh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delightful thing to talk about and it's, yeah, I'm happy to have participated in this way. So thanks for having me. Thank you again to Jackie for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Jackie on Instagram at Jackie Howard Consulting. You can find the link to her Instagram account and website in the episode description. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to help keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.